Good morning, guys. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're studying Christ. We're preaching from the cornerstone out. He is the cornerstone of this church, and we get to understand him first through John's gospel. Now we're in Luke's gospel, and in a few months from now, we're going to jump into Matthew's gospel to understand who Jesus is and in turn who we are and who we are to be as a church. And so today we're going to look at the next song anticipating the coming of Jesus. And before we do that, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we have an impossible task in front of us. We are asked to dig into an ancient book, to read these words um, with all that's going on in our minds and our hearts, and to hear you speak. And to let your Spirit take this word and plant it in our heart and grow something in us that changes us, that makes us different by one degree to another, day by day, to look more and more like the Son Jesus that we read in these pages. Lord, we are not up to that without your Spirit. And so I ask that even now you would quiet our minds and our hearts to hear and receive with eager hands the word preached to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at Zechariah. We said last week, uh, we, we really mused about the variety of ways that the Bible um, expresses one story. There is one story from cover to cover in the Bible. It shares the story, the good news of the gospel, but we get a bunch of different ways to look at it. The Bible is one book, but it's 66 books. It's written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years in three different languages from very different backgrounds. They include other characters in their books that, that get, have their own voice and their own expression of the gospel. This is a complex book telling one central story. So it shouldn't surprise us that there's a bunch of different ways to talk about the gospel. There's a bunch of different angles and emphases in this book to understand who Jesus is and what he does. If you and I get stuck in a rut talking about the gospel and what Jesus does for us and what we're grateful for, that's, that's our problem. That's not the Bible's problem because it has given us a thousand ways to think about the gospel. So to prove this, we kind of did a little exercise last week. And we, uh, taking John, we've studied the gospel of John, and then we studied Mary's song last week. We did a little exercise. We basically explained uh, the idea of Twitter to, to these two people in the Bible. And we said, this is what it means. This is what you do with Twitter. They were fascinated by it. We asked John and Mary to both tweet the gospel. In other words, how would you say, express the gospel as succinctly as possible, just using one sentence? What would you say? And we said, John the, Baptist, John the gospel writer would probably say, the Father gives eternal life to those who believe in Jesus. That's what he would say. The Father gives eternal life to those who believe in Jesus. Those are all John's favorite words. You're going to find all of those ver words on every single page of the gospel. He uses them again and again and again. Well, Mary would say something totally different. She's coming from a different perspective, thinking about the same Jesus. And this is what she said in her song last week. The Lord shows mercy to the humble. She's got a different angle, a different spin, a different emphasis thinking about Jesus. Well, this week we're going to meet a priest. His name is Zechariah, and he would become John the Baptist's father. And we're going to study his song. And I suspect that if you were to ask Zechariah to tweet the gospel, as we've already done, probably like the other people, he would scoff at that. But he would do it more so because Zechariah is a priest. Vocationally, he has spent all day, every day 
anticipating the Messiah in everything he does. He burns the incense. He spends time in the temple. He does perform sacrifices. He and everything about his vocation and studying the Torah is waiting and longing for the Messiah. And so to ask a guy like Zechariah to sum up the gospel in one sentence is asking a bride-to-be to sum up her feelings of her wedding day. That just ain't going to happen. We have a daughter, Amelie, who's four. We call her Ami. And she has been talking about her wedding day, oh, for about two years now. I mean, this is a daily part of conversations. And uh, I'm pretty sure she has asked every member of our family to marry her. She's just very anxious about who her husband's going to be. And so she's asked all of us. And and she thinks about this. She studies this. She decides what she's going to wear for this. She thinks about her wedding day. Just this past week, um, she was wearing high heels and she gave birth to her baby doll. Uh, she had her baby. She gave her a bottle. And then she went back to work that same day in her high heels as a surgeon. She's incredible. Hashtag empowering women everywhere. Ami's incredible. Um, so when you fast forward 20 or 30 years from this child and you ask Ami, tell me what, what it was to lead you to marriage or, or for God to call you to singleness. Sum that up. You're, you're going to hear, you're going to be in for a long, long story. One that's full of emotion and excitement and anticipation of what that means. Well, I think the same is true when we come to Zechariah today. When we sit down and we say, what are you feeling right now as you anticipate the coming Messiah? So with that in mind, let's read Zechariah's song. It starts in Luke chapter 1, verse 68, and here it is. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. When you ask Zechariah about the gospel, he's got the entire story of the Bible in his mind. You can tell because even in this short song, he brings up Abraham and David. He's thinking way back to understand who Jesus is. And so he tells a story in his song. And like every good story, Zechariah has a plot and he has a resolution. He has a plot that all of humanity is in and he has a resolution for this story. And like when we studied Mary's song, The way Zechariah articulates this and shares these things gives us a new way to think about the gospel. So let's start with the plot. Let's let's start with how he articulates the problem of all humanity. And he does this with three words. He says all of humanity is steeped in sin and darkness and war. That's the emphasis that Zechariah would give. Sin and darkness and war. All of humanity is in sin. Look at verse 75. He imagines a day when we will serve in holiness and righteousness. In other words, in a way that humanity cannot serve without the Messiah. 
Verse 77, he anticipates forgiveness of sins. In other words, he's looking forward to a day that he doesn't have now, that there will be true and deep and abiding forgiveness. Well, that's all interesting coming from a guy like Zechariah because we get introduced to him at the beginning of Luke's gospel and Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are described in chapter 1, verse 6 as righteous before God, walking blamelessly. Now, that's high praise in the Bible. The Bible only uses phrases like that for a few key people throughout the Old Testament. Noah, Job, and Daniel. That's the kind of moral company that Zechariah and Elizabeth keep. These are, these are pristine people. So, so what is Zechariah doing talking about sin? Well, he knows that sin abounds in his heart. Even when this description is said of him, he knows that this is true of himself. Gabriel, the angel, will come to him and will tell him, this is the Lord's promise to you. And Zechariah will doubt the promise of God. And because of that, the angel will strike Zechariah with dumbness. He won't be able to speak until John the Baptist is born. A priest who has spent all his time studying who the Lord is and anticipating his Messiah will doubt that very word when it comes. So if Zechariah, the blameless priest, understands his own sin, what hope is there for us? He minces no words when he talks about all of humanity to say that all of us, every one of us to a man, have sin in our hearts. All of us are guilty. All of us have rebelled and disobeyed God. All of us have made ourselves the center of our universes. We all sin. We're all steeped in sin. Well, then he talks about darkness because sin finds home in darkness. Not only are we sinful, but we don't even know all the ways we've sinned and rebelled against God. We're described in verse 79 as those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. That's a chilling description of us. We sit in darkness. The valley of the shadow of death, we heard about that in Psalm 23. In that psalm, Jesus the shepherd is leading us through the valley of the shadow. It's still there, but we are walking through it. But without the good shepherd, we sit in the valley of the shadow of death. There's no struggle in the darkness. There's no fight. There's no scramble. There's no resistance. There's no reaching out and crying out for God. We don't even know we're in the darkness. And so we sit. Well, lastly, Zechariah would say there is war. Did you catch all that talk in here about enemies and those who hate us? Verse 71, saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. 74, delivered from the hand of our enemies. Yeah, Israel and us, we have physical enemies. We have we have wicked people out to get us. We have unjust rulers, but we also have spiritual enemies, as Paul will go on later in the New Testament to unpack. In 2 Corinthians 10.3, he says, Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. In the earlier he, letter he wrote to Corinth, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he identifies our two greatest enemies in this life as sin and death. And the New Testament would add to that the evil one, Satan. Peter's going to write to Christians who are scattered, and he's going to plead with them, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. The cruel irony of the darkness, of ignorance, is that we hardly even know that a war is being waged against us. We are being undone by this triple enemy of sin and death and the evil one. That's the plot of humanity. That's where we stand. That's why it's so dire. And that's why Zechariah is so passionate. All of us have sin 
and darkness and war. So when you hear Paul passionately write to Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5.20, he says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You can't understand those words without understanding the plot of humanity. Because if you don't understand the plot, you might hear Paul saying, you know, Corinth, I understand that you guys have a lot of religious options. There's a lot going on in Corinth. I just want to submit a case for Christianity. I want to talk about some of the benefits of going to church and reading your Bible and praying. That is not what Paul is second, saying in 2 Corinthians 5.10 because that is not the situation of those who don't know Jesus in Corinth. He is saying to you, look, I plead with you. If you hear me, listen to the words of God. You are steeped in sin. But you are in darkness and you don't even know it. And there are enemies who will kill you and then they will go to work on you. Things and forces that are ready to undo you. If you hear me, I plead with you, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus, bring your sin, confess it to him, and you will receive his full and whole forgiveness and you will be made a new person. He pleads with them. Friend, if you are here this morning and you have not decided where you stand with Christ, if you have sensed some of these things in your heart, the sin and this darkness and this war, and you don't know where to go with that, I plead with you, just like Paul pleads with you, be reconciled to God. Come today. Do not wait. Do not hold off. Come today and understand what it means to confess your sin and to receive his forgiveness. Talk to one of us afterwards about that and what that looks like, but do not wait. For those of us in this room who have done that, we have repented, we have believed, we might be think, tempted to think right now, okay, I get where this is, sermon is going. It's an evangelistic sermon. This is not for me. It's for non-Christians. I should have brought so-and-so because I don't need spiritual milk. I'm more of a meat person myself. I'll wait till next week. Don't, don't be an idiot. Don't be fooled. We need the gospel as believers. We need this. We need to understand what is talking about because in all of our lives, even after we have accepted Christ and we are walking with him and we are his child and we are forgiven, all of us have evidences of this plot of humanity in our life. Sin and darkness and war. Christian, do you see the sin that is still in your life? That's a trick question. That's like asking, do you know that you pick your nose? Whether you say yes or no, you're still guilty. Do you see that sin is in your life? If you don't see that, let's grab your spouse or your friend to help you see it. You know it's there. Do you see the darkness? Do you see the ignorance? Do you see the ways in which you cannot sense God at all? You don't hear from God and you don't feel his leading at times? You're in darkness. Do you sense the warfare? Like Peter says, that there are, there are fleshly desires that wage war against your soul. Do you feel that? Do you sense that? Even as a believer, these things are true. Because we understand, according to the Bible, that when Jesus came at Christmas and at the cross, he forever got rid of the penalty and the power of sin. Those things are gone forever. There is no penalty of sin. We do not stand in judgment if we are a Christian. We will not be judged on the last day. Jesus will say to us, no matter what life we've lived, if we have come to faith in him, well done, good and faithful servant. You are with my son, Jesus. That means you're with me. The penalty is gone. The power of sin is gone. Do you know that as a believer, we can choose righteousness? When we are tempted to sin, we can choose it. 
There was a time in our life we couldn't choose righteousness. We were in darkness. We didn't know what that was. Today is the day as a believer we can choose righteousness. The power and the penalty of sin are gone. But the presence of sin is still with us today. The presence of sin still abides with us. And that's why we see and we sense these things in our life and our heart. Jesus is the ultimate word in your life, not sin, but you still will contend with sin in this life. You know, sometimes we imagine the gospel as the front door to the, to the house of Christianity. You enter the door, you go in, and you're done with the door. You don't need a front door once you're inside unless you're going to leave. And in Christianity, that's a bad thing. So we don't think about the gospel once we get inside. Friends, yes, Christian, the, the gospel is the front door. It's how you come to faith. But it's the framing and it's the hardwood floors as well. It is relevant to everything we do in the Christian life. To understand this gospel, to think about what the, what the Messiah has done, is relevant to everything we do. Because listen to Zechariah. Listen to what he imagines for all of us. In verses 74 and 75, grant us that we being delivered from the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Christian or non-Christian, who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to know and be known by the one who's created us? To know what it's like to run on all cylinders, to serve him and obey him and enjoy him in this life and the life to come. Who wouldn't want that? That's the gift that God gives us. And that is why the gospel is relevant. Because if the plot is sin and darkness and war, the resolution is decidedly forgiveness and light and peace. Now, we don't make any mistake here that this is some kind of self-help agenda, that this is chicken soup for the soul. This is something that Zechariah sees God enacting on our behalf. If we start to lay out the characters in this story, God is the one who acts on our behalf to save us. I hope you're the kind of person that writes in your Bible, because if you do and you look at Zechariah's song, circle the action verbs that God does. Visited, redeemed, raised, spoke, saved, show, remember, swore, grant, delivered, all of these things are God doing these actions for those who sit in darkness. If you are sitting in darkness and in the valley of the shadow of death, steeped in sin and bludgeoned by war, there's nothing you can offer. The God of the universe, he comes and he finds you and he delivers you and he acts on behalf of his own mercy for your sake. All of us have an operating uh, image of God, whether we're a Christian or not. All of us, when you hear the word God, you think of something. You imagine a picture, you imagine an idea, and that affects the way we live, and that affects the way we interact with God. Um, If we imagine, for instance, his posture is disappointment, we think about God as being one who's disappointed with us, do you think that might affect the way we ask for forgiveness? Absolutely. We are going to be very cautious about asking forgiveness from a God who we already sense is disappointed with us. If we picture God as aloof and kind of distant and doing his own thing, that is going to affect the way we walk our Christian life. We're not going to bother him. He's not going to bother us. And we're going to live our life that way. Listen to what Zechariah pictures when you ask him about who the creator God is. He looks in verse 78 and he says, The God we serve, that God is a God of tender mercy. 
It's the kind of God that's remembered every single promise and every single kind word that he has ever said to humanity. He remembers it and he brings it about and makes it happen. The God I'm thinking of is the God who is powerful enough to draw us out of this darkness and to set us on a path of righteousness and holiness for his son's sake. That's the kind of God that Zechariah imagines. What a brilliant image. God comes to us, Zechariah says, like a sunrise in the shadows. He finds us and he draws us out. And, and his Messiah undoes every part of the plot that humanity is in. When he sends Jesus, Jesus makes it all new. He undoes everything that's wrong with the world. In the darkness, Jesus is the light of the world. In our sin, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In war, what do the angels announce? Peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Everything that is wrong and corrupt in the world, Jesus undoes. That is the power and the promise of Christmas. And Christians, we need this kind of gospel in our lives. We need to think and drink deeply from this gospel and apply it to our lives more and more. Let me just close with one example, one practical way to take the plot and the victory of God and to make it practical in the Christian life, where, where the gospel goes. Every week, uh, our pastoral staff, we gather, John, Jonathan, and myself, we get together and we try to do what is said in Acts 6, where the apostles devoted themselves to prayer and the word. And so we read and we pray together. And then we spend time praying for you as a congregation. We talk about uh, the, the flock that God has given us and we pray for you. And then we talk about each other and what's going on in each other's life and how we can pray for each other. And between three men and three marriages, absolutely every time we get together, one of us, if not all three of us, is just getting out of a debate with our spouse. We are just entering an argument with our spouse. Or worse, we're in the standoff phase where, where we're both wrong and neither one is going to bend the knee and confess to the other person. Uh, we're, all of us are somewhere uh, during the weeks that we've done this together. You know, this, this standoff that we get in, if, if you're married, you've done this with your spouse. If you have a friend, you've done this with your friend. If you have a child or a parent, you've done this with them. We, we, we wrong each other, and then we can't bring ourselves to confess that to each other. And why is that? Because we are so miserable when we're in this standoff stage. We're so miserable when we won't confess something to the other person. Isn't that true? And when we're in that state, there are no words to put on that except the words that Zechariah gives us. He says, you know what? When you will not come to your spouse or your friend and confess your sin to them, you are living in sin. And not only that, but you're living in darkness. And not only that, but there is a war that is being waged against you. That's the plot. That's where you're at. What do we do with that? Where do we go with that? The only hope we have in that kind of conflict is the hope that Zechariah is talking about. The hope that comes to us like a sunrise on the shadows, that comes to us like a, a star in a Bethlehem night. It's the story of the gospel. It's what Jesus has done for us. Because if I know that Jesus has come and covered my sins, I don't need to guard that from my wife. I don't need to be so freaking insecure when she comes to me and says, I want to point out the sin in you. What do I have to lose? It's been covered and forgiven. Why do I need to guard that from her or anybody else? Confess it. 
Jesus has covered it. Live in that freedom. If I know that Jesus brings light into darkness when I'm miserable in that standoff, that's a gift from God because that's my conscience saying you are not living in the way God has created you to live. There is tension in your home. That's a gift from God. That's light being shed on my marriage. Confess it and go to her. If I know that Jesus brings peace to this war, this war that in this moment is being waged against my relationship, that is fighting against it, that would long to see this kind of unforgiveness fester and grow and develop and turn into a superficial confession to each other or just general resentment towards the other person. If I see that war, I understand that Jesus brings peace. He is the warrior that fights for peace. He has achieved peace in the cross. I now have power to die to myself and die to my pride and die to my selfishness and confess to another person. He's forgiven me. He's shed light on me. He has brought peace to my life. These are ways that we take this gospel, we take Christmas, and we understand it not only saves us, but it frees us. It allows us to live as God has called us to live. It is the joy of our salvation. Let's pray together. Lord, even as I speak these things, I just want more and more and more of this in my own life. I want the gospel according to Zechariah. That you have forgiven me of my sin. That you have brought light into my darkness. That you have achieved peace where there is war. I need those things. I long for them. Lord, I pray that as we celebrate Advent and Christmas, that you would make these things more and more true of me. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.